Have you seen some of the stuff coming out across nationals? We have, and we have an idea. When I watch it, I can't help but hear uh, internally the Benny Hill theme. That would be perfect. Somebody needs to put that together on YouTube. That's, yes, that is exactly perfect. The Bimmy Hill theme music and, yeah, people sliding down a hill on their butts. And how low can you go when it comes to crank sets? We knew we wanted a low end that was less than one to one, you know, for the really steep pitches or areas where you can't mash the pedals because you'll lose traction if the conditions aren't, uh, aren't desirable. So we settled on a 30 tooth chainring on the inside. Paceline, the podcast on two wheels, show number 49, that's seven squared. And with you today, from Red Kite Prayer, Patrick and Fatty. How are you doing, hey, hey. Patrick? Just fine. Just fine. Psyched it to be occurs- doing it. <laughs> me too. It occurs to me that it's a shame that you uh, don't have the nickname Pat, because then we could be Pat and Fatty. And that would be pretty fantastic. <laughs> I, I'm suddenly even more grateful that I don't have that nickname. <laughs> if your name was Patty, then well, that would be magic. S- yes, that would be magic. Yeah, let's go with that. Can I start calling you Patty? Um, say sure, yes. Patty. No, uh, <laughs> absolutely not. You're Patrick now and forever, dude. I can't even get people to call me Padraig except in print. Actually, no, that's not true. There are readers who, when they meet me, go, oh, Padraig. Um, so. Well, that's kind of awesome. It is. I People call me fatty all the time, although it's usually with a little bit of shame and embarrassment. It's, I, do you, do you want me to call you fatty? I'm like, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Check me out, dude. It's winter. <laughs> it's totally apropos right now. I, uh. I got a scale for Christmas. Oh, uh, this is the wrong withings. time of year to do that. No, it's the right time, man. It's accountability is back on the menu for me. And very little else is. Um, a new Withing scale, <laughs> it automatically uploads my weight and my BMI and all of the kinds of things that I don't want to know onto my phone every day. I am 21 pounds over fighting weight right now. I, just, you know, to, just, just to be absolutely 100% clear, my my fighting weight is 157 pounds, right? That is mm-hmm. the weight at which I race really well and don't have any power drop off. Um, so you do the math. I am right at the edge of 180 pounds, which is coincidentally the weight I was when I started the blog fatcyclist.com. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, let's back up a second and say, you know, that that you can cover that much territory in a single season. Um, you know, uh. that, I mean, it's, it's nothing to gain weight, right? Anybody, any fool can do that. I, you know, I can gain yes. weight. Um, it's getting it off uh, that is so impressive. And, and your ability to do that time and again, if I put on five pounds, there's a good chance it's going to stay there for two years. 
It's um, bound to, this has got to be bad for me. And I know I mean, we're going to get comments from readers and I welcome them. Please shame me. Um, but, <laughs> Sign me up. Yeah, I I do this every year and I he, here's what happens. And this was not on uh, on our run sheet for the podcast, but it interests me. So let's stay on it for a minute. Yeah. I uh, at, at the beginning of the year, I get super triple focused, right? And I drop whatever weight I have to. I do the long, slow miles. And I enter March to April reasonably light and, you know, with a good base. And then I go into intensity and I'm light and I'm strong and I am re- keeping my focus. By the time I get into the middle of my race season, I'm kind of like going, man, I miss sandwiches. And by the <laughs> time I get to the end of the season, I am like, you know what? I'm going to go inside and do nothing but eat sandwiches for like three months. And I deserve it. And I do that. And why well, look, come December, it's time to start the whole cycle again. I, you know, it's, it, that you can actually have a cycle. I just, it impresses the hell out of me. It really does. Eh, I, I no. know it's not a selling point. I get that, you know, but, <laughs> but that, you know, you don't just put weight on and then add more weight to it, you know, like so many of us would otherwise, um, I, you know, no, you know, kudos, all that. You know, you know, it would be something that is worth more praise perhaps would be if I were to take the weight off. And then not be a complete flibber to gibbet about putting it back on. Yeah, that wouldn't be nearly as interesting. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, think about what your blog would be if you'd actually had that kind of uh, discipline all along. I know. It's, yeah, discipline, not my strong suit. (laughs) But on the other hand, yes, it is. (laughs) (laughs) I am nothing if not a conundrum. Let's talk about bike stuff. Okay. In particular, I want you to hearken back to episode 13. And Uh. I'm sure all of our listeners are going, oh, yes, that was episode 13 when they talked about... The one in which Ross got a date. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Friends jokes will never get old. Um, (laughs) So... (laughs) <laughs> chapter 13 episode 13 was when we uh talked about a kickstarter uh miracle called yeah. the speed x leopard yeah the most successful uh bicycle related kickstarter of all time yeah it just went huge and of course it uh it funded at two plus million dollars and then things kind of went quiet for a while, <laughs> as uh, Kickstarters often will do. There were occasional updates, and then people eventually, much later than expected, but eventually did start getting their bikes. And there hasn't been a lot of news about it, but the Speedex Leopard has been a real disaster <laughs> <laughs> as far as people who actually own bikes. Let's talk about that for a little bit. Because I wish there is... was a Yelp review of the SpeedX Leopard. That's what I would yeah. like to see. Well, we'll have to make do with the Bike Radar review and the Road CC review, both of which gave it, I believe, the lowest possible reviews they could. Uh, both of them, I believe, gave it a one-star review. Mm. Um, but it's more the reviews that actual uh, people who backed the campaign 
really yes. interest me. Yes, they're, they're um, enthusiastic customers. Yeah, people who really wanted this thing to succeed. It and it, and we're going to call this segment the "I told you so" segment. But <laughs> <laughs> we're we're right rarely enough that when we are, no. we're going to play that card. <laughs> oh, we are going to milk this thing. No, it's there were some things that uh, are attributable to a business being new, such as uh, shipping and VAT tax and return costs turned out to be a massive problem for a lot of people in a lot of countries. You know, shipping costs are different. Tax and customs are different in different countries. And in particular for folks in the UK um, who are, I believe, still waiting for their bikes, they are going to be, many of them, ponying up an extra $700 when their bicycles arrive. Yeah, the whole VAT thing, you know... Man, what what an ugly uh, call from reality uh, that mm-hmm. was. I mean, watching the comments come in on that, um, I, you know, I really felt for everybody. You know, this is well, uh, this is not the sort of thing that you expect to get blindsided by. But well, I guess who it wouldn't buying, be, you yeah, wouldn't be getting blindsided buying, if it wasn't for that. You know, yeah. Well, people who were buying this bike were buying it with the expectation that they were going to be getting. A great value on a bike. They, people weren't buying this because they saw it as the best bike that has ever been built, but rather a good bike with a lot of tech built in for an exceptional price. The problem is, it's coming from somewhere, and the government will have its cut. Yeah. So, I, I, yeah. So, so problems like that. But there were things that were pro- that are problems with the bike itself too, right? Yeah, um, uh, the the broken light uh, that you know. Yeah, any number of people have have talked about problems with with the the headlight. There have been problems yeah. with computers. Um, QC, lots of QC problems. Yeah. Um, Where do things uh, stand with the seat post issue? I remember that there was a um, a light in the seat post with a USB port, so you could charge it up. Yeah, and people and were it's low. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, they so, put the port below the light. It's like, well, maybe you should have put it above the light so that – never mind. Um, well – But there but was that, a lot of talk caused, about that, yeah. Yeah, and that turned out to be a pretty big problem. So that – it means that in order for this uh, bike to fit a lot of people, they're having to put the USB charging port that is built into the seat post, in the back of the seat post, down below the seat collar, right? Yeah. And – pull it back up every single time they want to charge this bike or they can wait for a new seat post to be designed and made and shipped to them. And I'm not sure whether they get to pay for that or whether it's going to come to them for free, but they're going to have to pay customs on it, in which case it's nothing close to free. But yeah. So, and then of course there's what this thing is charging, you know, all the electrics on this Mm -hmm. is the and what kind of got people excited about it is they were calling this the world's first smart bike because it had the built-in computer the speed force computer yep and that it turns out is not that smart <laughs> <laughs> for one thing computers tend to not last as long as a bike true and technology yep. on computers evolves a lot faster than it does on bikes anyway yeah, yeah, but absolutely. You were, 
Yeah, you are. This thing is is basically a required component for this bike, and if it breaks, the screen breaks. You know, hey, you know, good luck getting a new one. If the um, if it ever syncs up with Strava, you know, that'll be great. But currently, it doesn't. Well, yeah, let's talk about that for a second. I mean, of mm-hmm. all the things that you want a computer to do in this day and age, you know, what's what's your not your bucket list, but what's your line in the sand? <laughs> what's your baseline? Yeah. yeah. What what is Lowest it? Lowest common denominator it of all bike do, computers. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I sync with Strava. <laughs> yeah, I just I don't look at that much data when I'm out on a ride. You know, when I when I feel like I need to be going hard, I'm going hard, and I'm not trying to verify with a computer that I'm actually going hard. Um, what I do, I mean, I guess in the early days I was looking at my computer because I couldn't look at it afterward. You know, <laughs> now that I can look at everything post ride, yeah. I don't look at the computer on the ride. As a matter of fact, when I'm mountain biking, my GPS goes in my hydration pack. I don't look at a single number. I have to remind myself to unzip the pocket, pull the GPS out, and turn it off at the end of the ride because it's not staring me in the face. And do you so, seriously do that? I I I, I ask you not. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I that is interesting, <laughs> and that is a topic for another conversation at some point. That you you ride with collecting data, but don't look at it during the ride. I love data during the ride. So it's, I, I think there's a, some different mindsets there, but l- let's shelve that one for another time. <laughs> yes, that's a different but episode. Yeah, the, the, I but mean, yeah, this, but so the bottom a, line is Strava. You know, I, yeah, put you all my, I put all my data up on the cloud so that I can see it, you know, with Strava. And I can, I can look at it and have some sense of how the ride went. Um and, yeah. you know, if I have a computer that doesn't talk to Strava, it's not a computer. <laughs> Certainly, or it's at least a very disconnected computer. No, it's, it's just an problem. abacus yeah. with a screen. <laughs> now, I would love an abacus with a screen, so you cut that out. <laughs> now, perhaps more important than all of this is the frame accommodates um, 23 millimeter tires comfortably. If you are willing to mess around with the brakes to a considerable degree, then you can squeeze 25 millimeter tires. On. Dude, that is so 2005. And that is, yeah, that's the limit. Um, and then the bike weight is around, what, 19 to 21 pounds, which is a pretty good weight for a mountain bike. <laughs> Now, so we're having we're having a little bit of uh, well, not a little bit. We're we're having less fun than we could, I promise you, uh, about this. But the reason is because today, um, less than twenty four hours ago, SpeedX launched a new Kickstarter for a new bike, and this one's called the Unicorn. Yeah. Uh, and this, and I wanted to ask you what you think of this so far. And to tell you a little bit about what I think so far as well. Well, you know, it's one of those things that I, honest to goodness, didn't even look at it when I first heard about it because mm-hmm. the leopard was such a disaster. I mean, we didn't even talk about how 
I don't think there's any way that anyone who knows something about bike handling would like the ride of the Leopard no. because the bottom bracket was so high. And also, mm-hmm. you know, you noted to me at one point that in photos, there was this huge gap between the top of the fork crown and the head tube, you know, and that suggests to me that there was a big error in engineering and they didn't understand either how the, the crown race fit on the fork or how the bearing fit into the head tube. And so you've got a gap where really none should be. And it makes me wonder, oh, did they screw something up? And did that, you know, uh, slacken the head tube ankle by, you know, a quarter of a degree or a half a degree? You know, what other, you know, minefield mistakes have these folks made? And so, yeah, when I did go and look at um, the unicorn, um, you know, there aren't as many... Skeptical. Really- <laughs> would be the operating word for both of us. It it's um yeah, I mean I wasn't hopeful. Now some of the mistakes that they made um with the leopard they didn't make here. So like they lowered the bottom bracket. Um mm-hmm. and they're gonna tout the fact that they've got seven sizes, but really when you look at the geo chart, it's only six sizes. You've just got you know, uh, uh, the the small and the medium are basically the same bike with just a longer seat tube and a longer head tube. Um, you know, so yeah. you've got the ability to sit a little higher. Um, but I mean, the reach is the same. Um, I believe the uh, the trail was the same. Um, you know, so yeah, you've got two sizes of bikes that you know just there's no significant difference between the two of them. Um, yeah. And then when you look at there are, I was going to say there are some interesting things about this bike though that make it so it's more intriguing to me than than the Leopard. The Leopard, um, it it, it was an aero bike that was so heavy that I just couldn't even picture myself riding it, Mm -hmm. and with parts that frankly I found a little bit terrifying. You know, the most no name uh, carbon clenchers you've ever heard of. Um, or just terrible aluminum wheels and, you know, with just, you know, things that I looked at, I was like, no interest whatsoever. But this thing spec'd out pretty interesting. Um, yeah. And I, I'm going to, I'm going to hop past all the low end ones right to the most expensive build, because I think it is interesting. Um, if you pledge $5,400 for this one, you get the Speed X Unicorn X, lots of X's in there, mm. E-Tap. And that is, you, with that, you get the, you know, of course, their integrated um, their integrated computer, which I think is unfortunate, although this one is detachable, so they've learned something there. But, um, and all of the Unicorn uh, versions come with a uh, built-in uh, power meter. That's interesting. They're all carbon. But this the high-end one comes with the SRAMRED ETAP group set. Uh, Hydra HC hydraulic disc brakes, Zip 303 wheels. Yeah. And that's a $5,400 bike. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, the, there's always this expectation that if something seems a little too good to be true, then it probably is. That said, that you know, if if this were a good frame, then that's a great price for a nicely spec bike. I, I simply don't see how they're producing 
a frame that allows this bike to come in at that cost without cutting corners. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, let's talk about a couple other really odd things. So, yeah, they've got this super high-end bike. The tires they put on it, Vittoria Rubinos. Um, yeah. I mean, that's like putting, you know, generic tires on a Ferrari. Really? You're going to go with Rubinos on 303s? Um, that just, that yeah. that absolutely boggles my mind. Now, they brag about how the frame itself is made um, from T1000 fiber, Torre. Um, this is really What good. do you know about that? I don't even really know. Um, so, I mean, I've, you know, having worked for a bike company, um, I've seen where um, that material will be used in high-end frames. And it's used in high-stress areas where they need stiffness. And there's not a lot of flex where they're actually trying to eliminate flex. Um, and it's something that you use... Uh, well, the way Jeff Socek, uh, the head of engineering at Felt, put it to me was that, you know, this is this is a blend. You know, you can think of it like a meal where, you know, you've got some chicken and you've got a salad and maybe you've got some corn. You don't want a meal that's all rosemary, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and what they've done is effectively, you know, this is this is corn pancakes with corn syrup with, you know, uh, corn ice cream and corn mead. And, you know, it's, it's like the, the, the worst nightmare version of uh, Pirate Prentice's famous banana breakfast in Gravity's Rainbow. This thing, it's all T-1000 material. And I, I went to a buddy of mine who works in the industry, um, has a lot of manufacturing expertise, and I said, just reality gut check. Would you build a frame you know, of all T1000. And um, his initial response on ride quality was sort of unrepeatable. But yeah, he was not in favor (laughs) of what uh, the ride quality would be. Um, And he was concerned about, okay, if you've got the weight down to the 700 gram range, you know, using that material, you know, what's it mean in terms of the amount of resin that there is in there? Um, So, I mean, People with, you know, much greater manufacturing expertise uh, than I have, uh, you know, question the ability of, of, you know, someone like this to actually produce that frame. Um, the big thing is, you know, it's just, it's a really, really uh, brittle material. And when you see their flex tests in terms of, you know, head tube flex, and then they show that uh, the flex of the seat tube there. Um, and that funny little member that looks an awful lot like uh, GT's triple triangle design. Um, yeah. You know, I... That weighed me out, to be honest. Well... I don't want that kind of flex. I, You know, my suspicion bike. is that the load that they that they have put on there to, to execute that test, you know, is probably, you know, 300 pounds. It's probably a good deal more than you or I would, would put into that frame. And so I don't think anyone in the real world is going to see that kind of flex. Um, but, you know, they're they're trying to appeal to non-cyclists uh, mm-hmm. or, 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 you know, uh, shall we say less sophisticated cyclists, perhaps. Um, so much of their marketing has been aimed at people outside of the mainstream of, you know, the cycling community. And, sure. and so they, they need some wow factor here. And I think, yeah. you know, that's where you get that but and they are good at the wow factor um yeah. while missing 
some of the fundamentals, the foundational stuff. You know, it's it's easy, you know, well, I, I will say it's easy to dismiss them out of hand. And then it is, it, but it was equally easy for me to come back and look at the the spec list on this and not knowing a lot about frames and frame materials go $5,400 for this build. Hmm. Well, I'll put my own tires on. I would anyway. Hmm. Um, you know, and, and, you know, thankfully they are at least starting this time with 25 millimeter tires, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> they can be taught. Um, still, so the, I'm worried that our listeners are going to be thinking, man, they are just beating these guys up to death. But really, I, I want someone like SpeedX to succeed because they are being innovative and interesting in some ways, right? They they are they are getting to a market with something that is appealing to certain people. <clears throat> but I'm afraid that anyone who gets the leopard is not going to be coming back for a second helping. You know, I my problem with this is that they position it as like we're the first guys ever to be smart enough yeah. to to sell you a bike that's this good at this price. And There's some arrogance there. Yeah. yeah, and I just I really have a problem with that because you know the very smartest people I know working in bicycling um, have ascended to places of prominence where they're doing some really great work. You know, I look at a guy like Dave Casel, who we're going to be talking to in just a little bit, um, and or, or Jeff Socek, who started at GT and mm-hmm. is, you know, the head of engineering for Felt. And these guys are incredibly bright. There are some people at Specialized who are mind-blowingly right, uh, uh, bright. And I really have a problem with someone coming along who can't figure out what sort of tires to put on a 303 saying, Oh no, y'all don't know what you're doing. And you know, it's not that I really need to bag on these guys, but (laughs) there, there is a certain caveat mTOR uh, with this enterprise that I think does deserve to be brought to light. I mean, let's remember, you know, this is the outfit that reached out to me said, we're going to be doing a media tour. And when we get to the Bay Area, we would love to meet with you and give you a chance to ride the bike and see just how good it is. And then that media tour evaporated. And when I emailed them twice more after that, say, hey, you know, anytime you're going to be in the States, let me know. I'd love to have a chance to get together. They did not answer my emails. I've done what I can to try to give these guys a fair shake. And, you know, at this point, I do think a certain sort of Consumer Reports style warning is warranted. Amen, brother. I'm I'm right with you. All right. Well, enough of SpeedX for right now. If you happen to feel differently, leave us a comment on yeah. uh, on Red Kite Prayer. If you are backing this bike, if you backed the Leopard, and you've got a good reason why, a compelling reason that we don't understand, tell us what it is. If you are backing the Unicorn, and you think, well, you know what? I'm going to throw away the frame. The parts themselves make it a bargain. Uh, or if you, you know, it, we love counterthought. So, uh, I, go, I would love to, to hear from somebody doing exactly that, because the thought crossed my mind. Yeah, yeah. Me, me too. <laughs> so, I, I need to do the math first, but... Um, Honestly, I the one thing we haven't brought up here is I don't know how um, 
how they are handling uh, shipping cost and tax and customs um, and whether they've got that resolved because that is, uh, you know, that added a third or more to the cost of the original leopard. And, you know, hopefully they, that's something they've got resolved, but that that really turned this, the original bike into a an, a, a bad situation for people who were buying that this bike because it was going to be cheaper than a comparable bike from another manufacturer. So anyway, leave us a message. Let us know what you think. We'd love to hear your opinions. Next up, we're going to be talking with Super Dave, and that'll be on the pace line. SpeedX Unicorn is the world's first smart road bike with an integrated power meter, carbon frame, and SRAM ETAP Hydro HC. Welcome back to The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. We have an interview with Super Dave Casel of 3T, uh, and this is a conversation you and Michael had with him recently. Is that right? Well, it was actually this past summer. We've been sitting on it, and uh, as it happens... sat on that. <laughs> well, we, we, it just took a little while to get to. Um, as it happens, uh, Dave was part of the big push within production uh, bikes for what we're calling subcompact or adventure gearing. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we've, we've talked previously about the FSA uh, Gossamer crank that I've been riding with 48 and 32 tooth uh, chain rings. And uh, he approached uh, FSA and discussed it with them. He also talked to some other manufacturers about this and you know, on the uh, Felt VR, this was back when Super Dave was still with Felt. Uh, the Felt VR has been specced with the new SLK uh, subcompact crank, um, and it's got 46 and 30 tooth uh, chain rings. I, I've liked Dave for as long as I've known him. He's an incredibly bright guy, and his new position with 3T is such that he's got... Um, uh, a bigger hand in crafting what's going on with the brand. And uh, he's just an immensely bright guy and always a lot of fun to talk to. So we're here with Dave Casel of 3T and we want to talk gearing because Dave, you've had a little influence and some new products we're beginning to see out there, subcompact gearing. Um, the big thing is what led you to think, okay, this is, this is a direction we need to start taking the industry. Well, we looked at a few things, uh, you know, during the development of uh, kind of the next crop of products you're starting to see uh, that I've had a hand in, and, and it's uh, it's really building products around what the consumer's demand is, the consumer mindset today, and things like tire clearance have become so abundantly important when you're developing a product, um, building bikes that can handle, you know, not just the side of, uh, of a paved road, you can get off the shoulder, you can get off the road altogether. Uh, and oftentimes that leads you to areas that aren't super smooth. They're areas that aren't super flat. You know, they're not built around a 6% railroad grade. You might have steeper pitches and, you know, and you're not, you're not traveling at 30 miles an hour on a, on a unimproved road surface. 
And so we looked at ways of improving the experience for the consumer. And one of those ways is, of course, providing a gearing range that suits that sort of 8 to 28 mile an hour speed that you're going to encounter. Um, and so we looked at what the capacity of the current systems that uh, the double road groups that are being offered today. And, uh, you know, a 16 tooth gap on the front uh, is great. You know, a nice wide range on the front uh, of a double chainring system. Um, but the cassettes were still kind of lagging behind what we'd done on the mountain bike side. Um, SRAM was very clever and figured out, well, let's just offer the mountain bike cassettes on our road groups. And so you can, you can run that 1042 cassette uh, and, uh, and then run a single chain ring and get a, a wide range of gearing that way, your 420% range of gears. Uh, but on the Shimano side and on SRAM's double groups, you're, you're kind of capped. So we knew we wanted a low end that was less than one-to-one. You know, for the really steep pitches or areas where you can't mash the pedals because you'll lose traction if the conditions aren't uh, aren't desirable, uh, especially on a on a on a road bike that is kind of uh, has a capacity on the tires to let's say 32 or 35 millimeters. You know, you can't really stand on the pedals and have traction and gravel. You know, on loose stuff. So yeah. you may need to spin your way up to get up there. And uh, so we wanted a low one to one. So we settled on a 30 tooth chainring on the inside. That allows the front derailleur to drop about as low as you'd have it on a brazon tab or uh, or with chainstay clearance. Much lower than that, and you're going to run out of space. You're going to run out of the uh, the limitations of the derailleur geometry itself. And then the outer ring, uh, we went with 46, which is a standard cycle cross size. Uh, so most of the curvatures of the front derailleurs are designed to handle that as a minimum uh, 46. So it's built around a structure and a geometry that'll fit on a road bike. It'll fit with current road shifting. But now you've got that lower end range. So you can have an Ultegra DI2 bike, a real premium bike, uh, and then shift through an 1132 cassette range, but you're not saddled with like the same gearing up front that the pros use. It's a real speed uh, design. And, uh, and so it's been a really, uh, a really eye-opening experience, I think, for some of the component manufacturers. It's odd that, that uh, Shimano stumbled upon that themselves. They actually have a, a subcompact crank set, but they only offer it in their Matreya group. So you won't find it, I think, on any road bikes, but I, I would be surprised if they didn't find a way to sort of bring that into the other, uh, maybe a non-series like they've done sure. occasionally. Um, there's a uh, there's a 4832, I think, from SRAM, but same thing, it's a flat bar crank. I think it's their Via crank. Uh, but again, they, they have the chain ring figured out. They just need right. to put it on a road standard and get the chain line right. And uh, I think you'll start seeing more of that on the OEM side. So we've been really happy with the reaction. Um, you know, it's something I'm at 3T now, and we've developed a mixed surface bike, uh, and it's something that we looked at. Uh, the solution we did there is a is a little bit unique, and then instead of making the chainring smaller at 3T, we made the wheels smaller. So we stuck with the same rollout as a 700 by 25 millimeter tire, and just built it around a 650B chassis, and uh, so another way to solve it. But with the wider tires. Uh, that we can accommodate in the Exploro. There's really no other bike on the on the market that can do a you know 45 even a 55 millimeter tire. Um, so if you're saddled if you're saddled with 700C, uh, then you need to go and you're going to do a 700 by 35 or 38 tire. You need to go smaller in the chain rings to get that usable gear inch range. Uh, but it's been great. You know I think that uh, really we've kind of turned a page for the industry. We're building bikes for consumers now. We're not building bikes for pros and then trying to force them. You know you don't need the you know, you don't need the 54 tooth chain ring that Chris Froome attacked and dissent on. The consumers just don't do that. And if they do, it's certainly the exception. It's not the bike that should come out of the box uh, configured that way. Uh, so, yeah, it's a great time to be in the market for a new bike. You know, you're really going to be able to cater your needs 
and it can, you know, you're not gonna have to piece together something out of a specialty catalog to get what you want, or maybe go to a custom builder. Those bikes are now available out of the box. Are, are there impediments to this new idea about gearing? If so where are they and how do we get over them? The biggest thing is the mindset of the dealer, right? They've, they've spoke 5339 for their whole life. This compact 5034 is, uh, you know, fairly new, I think, sort of given credibility, Tyler Hamilton's, uh, you know, heroic broken collarbone. I can't stand up, so I got to use a small gear. Uh, rides that he did in the Grand Tours gave that compact crank credibility. It, it had been around, like Richie made 74, 110 uh, bolt circle cranks, uh, and then 110 dedicated bolt circle cranks that could go compact for years. Even this idea of an adventure crank or a, a subcompact crank, as it were, uh, that we, we were able to commercialize, that same idea has uh, has been around. Sagino has had that crank. Uh, I think they just repurposed an old mountain bike triple crank with 74 110 bolt circle, and they put a you know a 30 tooth inner chainring on it, kept the middle you know 42 or 44, and then they just took the outer chainring off, and that was like their subcompact gearing. And so you. You saw that, but you know, Sagino is not an endemic brand that you see in bike shops. You're not seeing it in the catalogs that bike shops even order from. Well, and but as an aftermarket product, the big question there is, is it square taper or are they on some current they BB are standard? Now, yeah, there are now 24 millimeter two-piece uh, spindles, okay. but that took some time, of course, as well. You know, they were a square taper brand for the longest time, but now you have Rotor is doing it. That'll be commercially available. Um, I know that uh, FSA's got it from the good, better, best, so you can go all the way down to Gossamer, or even uh, they have like a inexpensive three-piece cranks that you can do on a, you know, if you're a product manager building a $800 retail price point bike, you can still go down that low, and um, and they'll go all the way up to the SLK, the super high-end, you know, hollow carbon fiber arms. Uh, because again, your consumers, they may have the resources to have a high-end bike that they ride on mixed surfaces, but they may not have the, uh, the strength to turn over that gigantic gear. Right. No one present company would be included. <clears throat> Sorry, no. Continue. <laughs> yeah, I just don't think that there's there's much. Uh, the thrill of, of riding that type of bike and those types of surfaces is not how fast you can go necessarily. It's how far you can go. And can I make it to the top of that hill? And, oh, I've ridden by that trail 50 times, but, you know, I've been saddled with this road bike with caliper brakes and 25-millimeter slicks. Now I've got this bike. I can go and see what lies at the top or over that next ridge. So uh, again, I think it's just the expansion of what consumers are demanding and uh, in giving a bike that's really head to toe designed for that. Yeah, it's so much better. And and Praxis is also included in yeah, that exactly. new range yeah, yeah. of cranks. Yeah. yeah, yeah. so those guys are gonna show off, I think that new crank this uh, at this Interbike trade show. Uh, you know, I spoke with Adam a little bit and I think the reaction's been good for them. And, uh, and they're not gonna be the only ones, right? I'm sure you'll see it uh, from brands that make their own products. You know, you'll start seeing that. Uh, but it just makes a lot of sense. So anything that tends to have some logic and reason behind it usually finds its way to the uh, finds its way to the market pretty quickly. Right. You know, and does this give two by more life? I mean, there seem to be a lot of push. Like, well, we're all going to go one by, and even SRAM was saying, yeah, one by is great for the road. You can use it yeah. on the road. Where is this the kind of the two by version 2.0? I do think so. I think that. You know, there is some credibility to the, the, the big jumps, the 16% gap in between the, the 10 to 12 and the 12 to 14. And so there are people that are concerned with, oh, I just don't like the jumps in between, so I'm sticking with two by uh, so I can have that sweet spot. Or, gosh, I really like riding that 16, 17, 18 spread. You know, I want that narrower range. So this gives you that useful gear range but the steps, the smaller steps in between. And that's not everybody, but it is certainly, it's one of the arguments against uh, these, the one by drivetrain. 
you know. So in, in you know, we'll we'll see what happens in the future. Maybe SRAM will bring that Eagle technology. You might start seeing one by twelve on road bikes, and so then you can narrow that gap a little bit. Uh, so there's kind of two ways to skin a cat. For me personally, I've really enjoyed the one by system because of its simplicity. Uh, so and 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 I do you know maybe occasionally miss a gear like oh I really wish I was at 85 RPM, not 82 or 93. Uh, but that's a that's a relatively minor occurrence. And usually when I'm out riding and I'm doing that sort of thing. Well, I just slow down a little bit and go ride a cadence that's comfortable. I don't have to go 17.4. I can also go 16.9. It doesn't really affect my ride condition. But if you're riding in a group and the pace picks up from 22 to 22.3, you may want to shift. And on a bike with big gaps, then you know you sometimes you're forced not to. So, it's uh, the industry's fractured, right? We used to have a road bike that was the pie. Now we got road bikes, gravel bikes, uh, endurance bikes, crit bikes. You know, so certainly we've done a good job of splintering that market. And so you're going to have to take one of those slivers of the pie and decide: Am I going to do narrow range, narrow steps in between with adventure gearing, or go one by and you know, and then tire size, tire clearance? So yeah, we've uh, we've sort of peeled that onion into in a, in a bunch of different layers. And so there is uh, there are some alternatives out there finally though for a two by system. Now you liked this subcompact gearing enough that you made it one of the items you gave an award to in your end of year RKP awards, right? It is. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I just, I see so many people riding at speeds that don't justify the gearing that's on their bike. And, you know, when you, when you start thinking about, you know, um, how fast you're going in a 5311 uh, or even a 5011, you know, when you are, when you have a cadence of 110, say, you know, not even track sort of cadences, just, mm-hmm. you know, 110 cadence and a 5011, you're going, what is it? I think it was, you know, 43, 44 miles an hour. You're hauling. Um, <laughs> and so it's kind of silly, you know, to think how many people just don't ever hit those sorts of speeds and yet you've got a gear on your bike that's really only useful um, when you're going that fast. You know, certainly, you know, you got to be going over 33, 34 miles an hour to make any use of a 5011, you know, unless you yeah. really like a cadence of 25. Um, <laughs> so as a single speeder, I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're you're a different beast entirely in that regard. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I like technology. I like shifting gears. I do too. And I, I, I was trying to picture, you know, during this interview and actually while we were, um, while I was reading your end of year uh, awards piece in RKP, what does it feel like? How, how does it feel if, when riding with a subcompact like this? Is, how is it different? I, I spend a lot more time in the big ring. You know, I don't spend nearly as much time thinking about whether or not I'm shifting between chain rings. I just spend more time in my big chain ring. And the other thing is, you know, by by shrinking the size of the big chain ring, you know, the gears that you're practically using on your cassette, well, that moves more into the meat of the cassette. So rather than shifting back and forth between, you know, say the 17 and 19 constantly, you know, you're shifting between the 16 and the 15 um, or the 15 and the 14, something like that. So you're, you're getting more practical range out of that cassette. And that's something that I really like. And I love being able to look down on a difficult climb and see that I'm not in my bail gear. You know, I don't like the moment <laughs> that I'm going uphill to be in the easiest gear that I have. Um, 
you know, that strikes me as, as poor allocation of resources. <laughs> I, I like that. Uh, and plus there is just a morale thing where when you're in that last gear, it's like, well, that's it. <laughs> yeah. That's all we got. Hope yeah. it doesn't get any harder. And I mean, all right. Yeah, so much gravel riding I've done. You know, it's like I'll be on a section of flat pavement in my big ring. And the moment I leave the pavement, you know, when I'm running a standard compact, I'm immediately out of the big ring. You know, it's like, oh, I'm on dirt now. I need to be in the small ring. And with smaller chain rings, you know, I don't have to think that way. So, Hmm. yeah. Uh, And, you know, cheers to Dave for really leading the charge on that, you know. Um, No joke. You know, as was noted, you know, there were some folks who were already offering this sort of thing, but nobody had kind of pieced it together with uh, adventure riding and uh, seeing that as, well, this is an intelligent solution uh, to a pressing problem in terms of componentry. So, yeah, I can't wait really to see what his ha- stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And whatever he does next at 3T, um, I'm ready. We're We're talking about getting me a bike to review now. So I'm looking forward to that. I will look forward to the review. Coming up next on the pace line, big developments at Specialized, the muddy slip and slide at Hartford, and our pace line picks. Welcome back to the Paceline Segment 3 now. Little pieces of news and our Paceline picks. Patrick, I understand there's been a big development to Specialized. You know, some friends of mine in the industry were completely unsurprised by this, but frankly, I was floored. Uh, The Global Director of Marketing for Specialized, Slade Olson, has left the company. Um... And I, you know, I look forward to catching up with Slate at some point and talking to him about this, but he's such, um, uh, such a discreet individual. I kind of doubt that I'll ever really hear just what took place. Uh, I mean, he says that the big reason, um, is that they want to go back to Portland so that his wife, who is a doctor can resume her medical career there and have a proper practice. Um, but Holy cow, I thought he was holding the keys to the kingdom. Um, Mike Sinyard's son, Anthony, is not going to become the CEO of the company. And so they have been lacking an heir apparent ever since Ben Capron left the company um, a little more than a year ago. And so I thought that once Slate was hired to be the global director of marketing, Uh, that, you know, he was the guy who was going to be groomed to replace Sinyard once his son set and he went off into retirement at some point. This is a a problem that, you know, specialized can't get around. Um, And uh, so I'm I'm just kind of floored by this. What's really interesting is that Mark Cody, uh, who's headed specialized advanced concepts department previously, um, he is now taking up uh, uh, Olson's old position. Um, so it's hmm. a, a really interesting lateral move. 
I've known yeah. that Mark has been moving around within the company, um, getting experience in, in different areas. And uh, I, I'm beginning to think, well, maybe Mark is the guy they're going to they're going to groom uh, to to be the next Mike Sinyard. Um So I look forward to speaking yeah. with him sometime soon. Um, I've known Mark for a number of years. He's a very bright guy. Um, I need to really put a moratorium on me and the word bright for the rest of this episode. Uh, <laughs> I was just about to ask you to describe me in, in those terms. Well, you're also a very bright guy. <laughs> I like smart I, people. You know, I learn things from them. Um, and, oh, you know, I, I really didn't. I really did not want to yank that uh, compliment out of you. But so it's tell, an easy tell one. me what. What would you what would you think would be the difference in specialized minus Mike Sinyard? I think that's kind of an interesting question. Yeah, I'm no, I mean that's an absolutely fascinating one because uh Mike you know, Mike's had this incredible um education for himself of, you know, mm-hmm. growing, you know, growing this tiny little import company into one of the world's largest bike companies. And so he's had, you know, a, a trial by fire education. You know, there was the partnership with Richie that had to get unwound at one point. There was, I forget what the name of the initiative was, but there was one point when uh, Specialized was going into all the big box retailers, you know, and they backed away from that. And so there have been any number of occasions that, you know, all the arm hair on Sinyard's arms has been singed off by some move that they later rethought. Um, and I think those have been really valuable lessons for him. Um, and he's an incredible competitor. And so, you know, the, that's played out in some interesting ways in terms of uh, the bikes that Specialized makes today are inarguably some of the, some of the best handling and best performance performing bikes out there at the same time they've been known for um a highly aggressive marketing plan and it's interesting because slate was brought in to help tone down some of that marketing uh Hmm. as he put it to me uh shortly after his arrival uh he said a whole lot less red um (laughs) and (laughs) and uh so you know it's been an um you know They've been a company that has experimented a lot. They've tried a lot of different things. And so because of Sinyard's willingness to try something and then, you know, back away from it if it's not working, there's a lot of respect for him within the company that, you know, Mike has more insight, you know, than perhaps many CEOs. Um, There is a legendary story from about 10 years ago when the industry was starting to look at 29 inch wheels and make the transition to that from 26 inch wheels. And the story I was told was that uh, they'd taken all their preseason orders and they looked at it and uh, the, the ratio was kind of a 70, 30, uh, 26 inch wheels to 29 inch wheels. And Sanyard said, no, flip it. We're not ordering that many 26-inch wheeled mountain bikes. Uh, Once this thing catches, all the dealers are going to have their pants down and they're going to want to have 29-inch bikes. Um, Don't don't follow this forecast. Go heavy on the 29. And it was a prophetic decision. And it helped position them at the forefront 
of 29 inch wheel mountain bikes uh, in terms of you know really helping that to gain uh, acceptance. So, you know, specialize without him at some point, there's certainly going to be a period of growing pains. But what I know of Mark Cody is that, you know, the, the regard for him within the company, um, I think people are going to listen to this dude because he's got a lot of diverse experience. I look forward to sitting down with him sometime soon. And it'll be interesting to see where things go, uh, regardless of the direction. Um, it's when you have someone who is a, uh, who embodies a company uh, that is a, t- uh, a tough move, no question. Let's move yeah. on to uh, the CX Nationals in Hartford, <laughs> Connecticut. The slip and slide? Yeah. The slip and slide. Oh the Mudfest 2017. Yeah. I, I saw uh, a tweet from Richard Freeze earlier today, you know, saying, you know, watch out for the, the chorus. You know, they really brought it. And, uh, you know, I mean, there's there's nobody more partisanly in love with New England than Richard Freeze. And, uh, you know, hearing him talk about, uh, you know, this course and the people behind this coming up to this, I was like, okay, this is going to be epic. And then the first video started to hit today. And oh, my gosh. <laughs> um, you know, it's like one of those, those turn-of-the-century films of, you know, some disaster unfolding in which nobody ever really got hurt, but it was just comical in in the severity of the disaster. Um, to see the better part of the opening half of a field slide down a hill. See, when I, when I watch it, I can't help but hear uh, internally the Benny Hill theme. That would be perfect. Somebody needs to put <laughs> that together on YouTube. That's Yes, that is exactly perfect. The Billy Hill theme music and, yeah, people sliding down a hill on their butts. Yeah. Uh, of, yeah, I I almost always hear the Benny Hill theme, though. <laughs> in, it's, in, my permanent, in, it's my permanent earwig, man. It's a curse. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think earwig is the wrong word. Earworm. Yeah, I mean, earworm. They're both uncomfortable, but but differently uncomfortable. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Earwigs, man. I don't have them. They're gross. Google I, I, them if if you dare. No, don't um, don't Google them. If you don't already know what they are, you don't want to go find out. <laughs> Let's wrap up with the paceline picks before okay. we go any further with earwigs or earworms or the Benny Hill theme. Let's go on to the paceline picks, and I'm going to do mine first. If okay. That's okay with yeah. You. And Please. my pace line pick this uh, this episode is Peaky Blinders season one and two. If you have Netflix and you find yourself riding on a trainer because it is cold outside and you're looking for something interesting to watch, something that has a lot of energy and a lot of swearing and <laughs> no small number of naked bodies um, and some great accents and fantastic plot. Peaky Blinders is right for you. I um there aren't a lot there are only 3 seasons. I'm currently at the beginning of season 3, so please don't spoil it for me. Um and each season only has 6 episodes or so. So you're going to go th- you're going to tear through this fast and then you're going to be bummed probably because I assume that season 3 ends with a cliffhanger like seasons 1 and 2 go. But man, what a great show. And more generally what a great time to be forced to be on a trainer. <laughs> as you know, as a guy who you know, I still have a week or two before I can uh, 
get the thumbs up from the doctor to get back outside on my bike. Um, you know, a being on a Wahoo kicker with trainer road and Netflix and, or iTunes and, or cable with on demand, everything. Um, I can get the intensity and duration of workout I want, um, with such an amazing array of, content to kind of interest me and sometimes motivate me, sometimes distract me, depending on what I need. Um, if you're a nerd, you know, a bike nerd, wow. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so let me get this straight. Are you mm-hmm. suggesting, recommending a television show that Paul Guillaume doesn't have anything to do with? You know, uh, it's hard to believe that Poggio is not involved with Peaky Blinders. Um, that dude, he's he's fantastic. We got to get him on this show, Duh. Uh, and and he's going to be he's going to be real pleased that we name dropped him right now. <laughs> I just, I mean, I started watching a few episodes of the li- Librarian just because I knew he was involved. I, I, you mm-hmm. know, my my, uh, I don't want to say. Uh, ex- well, my experience of him, you know, m- my knowledge of his work and and his uh, his brain power, <laughs> um, I you know that that guy really interests me, and I was like, well, where yes. does his talent take him? You know, what does he create? And so I started watching some of the librarians just because of him. Yeah, smart guy, interesting guy, um, rides uh, whenever he can, and uh is making movies and television. So, uh, yeah, kind of a cool guy to follow you, or to follow. Uh, on Twitter, at FizzHog, F-I-Z-Z-H-O-G-G. Worth doing. Yeah. Love you, Paul. <laughs> um, I don't know. It's possible he's blocked me by now. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> so. uh, your turn. Okay, so I'm, I'm up with uh, a pair of jeans from Thunderbolt Sportswear. Um, these got sent to me early this fall to check out as a piece for kind of commuter wear, that sort of thing. Um, they, are, they are jeans. They are not cotton. Um, and What are they? Uh, well, they're flammable, I guess is one way to put it. Uh, okay. They, they are stretchy. Um, that's the, the bigger issue. Um, and, right. uh, you know, it's one of those things I thought, oh, this could be, you know, kind of great for when I'm commuting around town and, you know, picking boys up and, you know, riding cargo bike, that sort of thing. Um, and that way, like I can walk into uh, daycare or, you know, the after school program and grab one of my kids without scandalizing the housewives. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'll say that. Or house fathers. Um, oh, I don't, I'm not worried about them. Um, but, I, I, you know, it happens a lot less up here. But when I was still living in Southern California, walking into a daycare in Lycra, um, it was not welcome. I I would periodically get some looks like I was. Uh, really? Yeah. Underdressed. Um, and so, you know, it's one of those things like, all right, I'll, I'll try wearing, you know, some Giro New Road stuff or something. And that really honestly did make a difference. Anyway, the, the, uh, the Thunderbolt, um, uh, I started wearing it. It was like, okay, this is, this is nice. Um, you know, it's, it's mostly nylon with a little polyester and a little bit of spandex in it. Um, 
They're they're made in Portland. Um, I don't know if this is really meant to be a hipster kind of thing, but the thought that occurred to me one day recently was that I was about to go over to the pump track here in Santa Rosa, and I knew I was going to spend a little while swinging a shovel, uh, helping to pack down some of the turns, and then I was going to ride. And it's like, well, I don't want to be standing around in cycling shorts or whatever while I'm swinging a shovel. Oh, I'll give these things a try there. You know, I'll wear them there. And hmm. it turns out that they've become, at least for the lower half of my body, my pump track uniform because they're stretchy enough that they don't restrict my movement in any way. And yet I still look perfectly normal. I don't look like some roadie who got lost and accidentally wound up on a pump track. Cause I mean, uh, until a couple weeks ago, I guess about two weeks ago, I didn't really know what I was supposed to wear, but I wasn't going to wear jeans cause I just can't move well enough in them. And so, um, these jeans from, uh, from them, they're really pretty cool. I like them a lot. They're not cheap. Uh, the Thunderbolts are $200, um, but they come in a variety of sizes. Uh, you can buy them both in uh, waist and length. Um, I'm a 32-32. I guess that makes me a cube. Um, but that I was able to specify the inseam as I was specifying the waist was pretty impressive to me. So I like these guys, uh, and we'll have a link to them in our show notes. You know, if it doesn't matter whether they were meant to be hipster jeans, the fact that you're wearing them makes them dad jeans. <laughs> I've just brought them down a notch. Sorry, guys. Yep. They just became that much less cool. <laughs> <sighs> not saying that you're not cool. No, we can go ahead not. and say that. Yeah, <laughs> we've known that. I think that wraps it up for this episode of The Pace Line. It if better. you like us... For crying out loud, subscribe on iTunes or on Stitcher or on Podbean if you happen to be the person who listens to us on Podbean. Or Google Play. Oh, there's so many ways you can listen to the pace line. <laughs> for Patrick and for myself and for Hottie, thanks for listening to the pace line. We'll see you on episode 50. Episode 50.